term self-harm is an umbrella term encompassing a broad range of behaviors under which is included substance abuse and misuse, suicide, and non-suicidal self-injury, or NSSI for short. Disordered eating also falls under the umbrella of self-harm and frequently co-occurs with non-suicidal self-injury. What is the relationship between self-injury and eating disorders? How often do they co-occur and why do they co-occur? And what is the relationship between physical pain sensitivity and eating disorder behavior and or self-injury? To answer these questions and to talk about self-injury and eating disorders, I am joined today from Fargo, North Dakota by Dr. Katie Gordon. Welcome to the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast, a resource for parents, professionals, and people with lived experience. I'm your host, Dr. Nicholas Westers, clinical psychologist at Children's Health, associate professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and chair of the Media and Communications Committee of the International Society for the Study of Self-Injury, or ISSS, or simply IISS. Dr. Katie Gordon is a licensed clinical psychologist who specializes in cognitive behavioral therapy. Prior to working as a therapist, Dr. Gordon was a professor for 10 years. She was recognized as an inspiring teacher for her classes about psychopathology, empirically supported therapy, and cultural diversity. Dr. Gordon is a mental health researcher who has published over 80 scientific articles and book chapters on suicidal behavior, disordered eating, and related topics. She co-hosts Psychodrama Podcast, check it out, blogs for Psychology Today, and shares mental health information through her website, katherinehgordon.com. Dr. Gordon's book, The Suicidal Thoughts Workbook, was published in July of 2021. And if you look in there, and one of the additional resources is IISS. And she is actually giving away two of her books today. So stick around to the end of the episode to hear how you can enter in and win one of those books. Welcome, Dr. Gordon. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me on. I really enjoy your podcast. So it's really an honor to be a guest today. Well, thank you. As you've probably listened to other podcast episodes, I ask everyone at the beginning of the episode how they became interested, and I'd love to hear how you became interested in researching non-suicidal self-injury and researching non-suicidal self-injury and eating disorders in particular. Absolutely. Well, when I when I was in high schools around the time I decided I had wanted to be a therapist because my father was one, and I, I was very interested in psychology, I also had two very close friends in high school who struggled with NSSI. And I I cared a lot about them and really wanted to understand why they were hurting themselves. And they kind of had described that it was a release or a relief to them. And I, I wanted them to feel safe talking to me about that. But I also worried about them. And that, that kind of stuck with me when I went into college and started majoring in psychology. As an undergraduate, uh, started working with Dr. Thomas Joyner at Florida State University, and his lab focused on, well, I was initially drawn to learning about depression, but he also focused on suicidal behavior, non-suicidal self-injury, and eating disorders. And so once I was kind of immersed in that research world, I thought back to my friends and how they struggled, and I and I learned that actually there was a lot of need for more science in the area to help people like my friends who had struggled. So that that kind of is how I got interested in it through a personal level, and then learning more about the research also motivated me to want to understand it better and help people like my friends. 
That's very similar to my experience. I think I had shared in an earlier episode how I got interested in the topic. It was my sophomore year of college and a couple of friends disclosed to me they had been self-injuring and I wanted to be able to support and help them. And at the time there just was nothing out there on it to be able to know. And so I wanted to dedicate a lot of research and just clinical learning to figuring out how we can help support my friends, your friends and, and others. Definitely. I think when when it's personal and those personal relationship, it really hits close to your heart and makes you want to do something more for those people who are suffering. We're talking about self-injury in the context of eating disorders today. And I know one question people have, or at least I remember I had when I was in graduate school, was the relationship between self-injury and eating disorders. How often do self-injury and eating disorders co-occur? It's a great question. For that, I'm going to reference a review paper from 2020 by Keekins and Clays. It's called Non-Suicidal Self-Injury and Eating Disorder Behaviors, an Update on What We Do and Do Not Know. It's very good. And there's kind of a range of prevalences, but what they tend to find across studies and what they report in that review is that there are quite high rates of eating disorder behaviors among people who have a history of NSSI. So for example, uh, one study, you and colleagues found that nearly four out of five people who engaged in NSSI had at least one eating disorder behavior in the past week, with binge eating being particularly prevalent. And just as another example, there was a study that found that almost half of young adults with a history of NSSI reported an eating disorder behavior during this two-week observation period in the study. And then when we're looking at it in the other direction, the prevalence of NSSI among people who have diagnosable eating disorders, there was a meta-analysis in 2016 where they found that 27% of people diagnosed with eating disorders reported comorbid NSSI. And this was particularly high in bulimia nervosa, where about a third of people with bulimia nervosa reported NSSI. And with anorexia, it was around 22% had reported that. You tend to see around similar for binge eating disorder, around 20%. So while there's a range, one thing is clear, and it's that people who engage in NSSI or disordered eating are at much higher risk for the other behavior. And what about age of onset? Is there a temporal relationship where one happens before the other, where, say, an eating disorder places someone at risk for engaging in self-injury or self-injuring places someone at risk for an eating disorder? The broad look at the existing research suggests we need much better research to get more fine-grained understanding of it. But there are a few studies that we can look at to get some sense of it. Wilkinson and colleagues did a study, and they found that for individuals at age 14 who had engaged in non-suicidal self-injury at least two times were at much greater risk for having an eating disorder at age 17. So in that case, it looked like there was a prospective association between NSSI and later eating disorder onset. And then when you look in the other direction, they also there is a study by Riley and colleagues, and they looked at college students with past month purging behaviors, and they found that those individuals during the first year were more likely to have the onset of NSSI if they had engaged in purging. So in short, we need more research, but there appears to be some bi-directional relationship where people who engage in NSSI are more likely to later develop an eating disorder, and you also see the reverse. 
I think I remember in graduate school earlier on with that research that individuals who self-injure, yes, had a greater likelihood of also having an eating disorder, but then the prevalence rates of those with eating disorders who self-injured was even higher. Why is this? Why do you think that they co-occur so frequently like this? I think that's a really important scientific and clinical question. And I've been happy to see how many people in the field, including Lawrence Clace and Jennifer Muhlenkamp and many others who have looked into what is that connection. And some of the common factors that tend to be identified, a big one has to do with regulating emotions, especially reducing painful negative emotions. That seems to be something that you see both in eating disorders and people that engage in NSSI. There also tend to be some other factors like a a negative view of the body that can increase the risk for hurting oneself and disordered eating, history of trauma, ruminative thinking style. And then there also tend to be, there's some research suggesting that there can be interpersonal factors at play as well, whereas individuals who struggle with loneliness or with conflict may be at higher risk both for disordered eating and NSSI. And that's actually the focus of a current grant project that I'm working on, where we're really interested in looking at momentary data. It's an ecological momentary assessment study. And what we have is college students at the beginning of freshman year and end of freshman year, we ask them to report several times during the day in the moment. Have they had a conflict? Did they feel lonely? What were their emotions like? And then we also ask them to report if they engaged in any disordered eating or self-harm behavior or if they had urges to self-harm. And so I'm hoping once that data is collected, which it'll probably be another year and a half, I'll be able to answer with more nuance and, and precision in terms of how those factors might be related in time to those behaviors. But overall, it does seem like a way of coping with very painful emotions and difficult situations is present in both. You're looking at this, do you have any specific hypotheses at the moment or just more exploratory with what you're just sharing now? The hypotheses that I have actually, as you mentioned in my introduction, I was in academia for 10 years and then I was a full-time clinician for two and a half years before starting this grant. Now I'm 50-50. But one thing that as clinicians we notice how often the focus of therapy is interpersonal issues, right? There's conflicts with their partner, with friends, they're feeling lonely, they're unsure how to communicate clearly. And so I noticed this pattern of when people were more likely to feel lonely or have conflict or unsure how to express something, that week they would be more likely to report binge eating or maybe more likely to report harming themselves. And so the hypotheses actually grew from that and the research literature. And the hypothesis is that when those interpersonal conflicts happen or there's loneliness and the person at the same time has um, lower inhibitory control or more impulsivity in that moment, which is something else we're measuring, that's when they're most likely to engage in those behaviors. And so the idea is that if that's true, then we could tailor momentary interventions that would be more helpful to people in those moments of difficulty. Well, that's a really important study. I can't wait for, I mean, I know a year and a half plus writing it up and publishing it, it takes time, but I'm glad that you're looking at that. Thank you. I'm really intrigued by learning at a more 
momentary level about these issues, and, and, I'm, and I'm hoping that it will really help to guide some interventions. And you had mentioned Dr. Glenn Keekins, uh, one of his studies. We actually interviewed him talking about ecological momentary assessment, which you had just referenced. So for people that want to listen to that, can find that. It's one of our earlier episodes. What is the relationship between physical pain sensitivity and individuals who self-injure or have an eating disorder? And how might we identify it as such? Or does it even matter? This is, I think, an important question. Overall, there are the research does suggest that people who engage in NSSI and who engage in disordered eating tend to, on average, can have lower pain sensitivity. I mean, some report no pain at all while engaging in these behaviors, while other people tend to experience quite a bit of pain. And so I think that that alone, that pain sensitivity, having a lower level of it can be a risk factor for these behaviors because it can be more reinforcing or easy for them to do those behaviors. And then if they have an emotional release or relief, it can feel better without that physical pain interfering. So I think that's important to know. There is a study that I did with some April Smith and colleagues that we published in Psychiatry Research in 2013. And we looked at four different samples and we were trying to understand in particular this association of overexercise and suicidal behavior. And what we found is this connection related to both a decreased pain sensitivity, and in those cases, we mostly measured pain through apparatuses like equipment that heat up and the person indicates when they first feel pain, or it's a pressure that is placed on their finger and they indicate when they first feel pain. And what we found is people who overexercise tend to have a lower pain sensitivity in those cases. It was cross-sectional, so we don't know if it's kind of over time it built up, but that did exist there. It kind of, I think, fit with that interesting study by Fox and colleagues that came out in 2019, where they looked at people who engage in both non-suicidal self-injury and disordered eating and found, I think, somewhat surprising to some of us that the participants said that they were engaging in some of the disordered eating behaviors for the purpose of making their death come faster, right, which is kind of on the suicidal spectrum, or for hurting themselves in that moment. I think that traditionally many of us, myself included, thought of separating non-suicidal self-injury and disordered eating because we focused on the disordered eating as really being driven by weight and shape concerns. However, this really important study found that the distinctions were not as clear as they thought. They they found that the participants said that they did engage particularly in some of the restricting behaviors with an intention to hurt themselves. So back to your question, which I kind of had a, a very a lengthy answer to, I do think the lower pain sensitivity does increase the risk for both of those behaviors, including in a comorbid way. In addition to that, I think it's important to examine individually with patients or with friends or peers if there is a self-harm function along with some of those disorder eating behaviors, because it does look like that can happen as well. Yeah, I know with our definition of non-suicidal self-injury, it can be tricky sometimes because we talk about it being intentional tissue damage. And sometimes with eating disorders, whether it's restricting or binging, purging, that may not cause the typical tissue damage we normally think of. So where does it fall within the definition of non-suicidal self-injury, especially if there's no suicidal intent in the over-exercising behavior, but it's causing harm to oneself 
where does that fall? So I think that's a that's a great point. I think that it is really hard to make those distinctions because you're right. I mean, especially some of the disorder eating behaviors can be quite painful, but you're right. There's a second aspect of that too. If it's if there's not any intention for death, then it would not fall into the NSSI category too. I think it does really challenge us to think about how distinct all of these constructs are from one another. So you've cited a lot of research, which I love. I love hearing that and just kind of breaking it down for us. Your early research, though, you examined the impact of racial stereotypes on being able to recognize eating disorders. And as I read your paper, I remember you had research participants read passages about an adolescent girl who displayed eating disorder symptoms, and you found that the race of the adolescent girl had a significant impact on the participants' ability to detect the eating disorder, where participants recognized the eating disorder much more often when they read about a white girl than when they read about a non-white girl, specifically black or Hispanic girls. So two questions with that. First, why do you think this was the case? And did the race of the participant matter in being able to correctly identify an eating disorder? And then second, how do you think your research on racial stereotypes and identification of eating disorders might apply to identification of non-suicidal self-injury? Thank you for asking about this. This was my undergraduate honors thesis, so it was actually the first research study I conducted uh, with Marisol Perez, who was a great mentor, and Thomas Joyner. And the idea came from, I, I grew up in a fairly diverse area in South Florida, and I, I had a friend, a Latina adolescent girl, who struggled with anorexia Ultimately, she was diagnosed with it, but for quite a while before it was recognized as an eating disorder, it was viewed as uh, anxiety for a while. And she wondered if part of that was this idea that eating disorders only affect white adolescent girls. I think that a lot of that came from the early literature, which research studies were looking at who was in hospitals and clinics, and there was an overrepresentation there of, of individuals who um, had access or tended to be research participants. And so I think that there is a stereotype that people who are Black or Hispanic are less likely to develop an eating disorder. So even when presented with this passage of someone with clear restricting behaviors, they would identify the symptoms, but didn't view it as an overall syndrome. And so I think that's what was going on there. Interestingly, the participant ethnicity did not have an impact on recognition. However, the majority of the sample was white, and so there might have been limited power. I did want to mention, on an optimistic note, the study was replicated. So the, uh, my study took place in 2001. I think it was published in 2002. A more recent study in 2013 looked at basically a very similar question, and they did not replicate the effect. And that suggests, one, that... I should say the, the effect that we found did replicate in clinicians in the early 2000s, but perhaps things changed in those 10 years. At least that's the optimistic way I hope to interpret it, that maybe there is growing awareness of the diverse group of individuals who can be affected by disorder eating, and hopefully that means more people, their peers recognizing it and getting access to care. So I did want to mention the, the update, which I think is a promising one. The second part of your question with regards to non-suicidal self-injury, I think that there does tend to be a stereotype there 
as well, that maybe certain people are more affected than others. And so I do think that really in clinical practice, this is where awareness of potential biases and using structured interviews with every client you meet with is so important to not miss these things based on a person's gender or age or ethnicity or any other kind of variable that might be affected. Because as we know, non-suicidal self-injury can affect people of all kinds of different backgrounds. And so think that it's important that we ask and check in with everyone, especially since we know it does coincide with eating disorders so much. If we know someone has disorder eating behavior, it's maybe particularly important to assess for non-suicidal self-injury. Yeah, I think earlier research and even still research today, a lot of the samples are white. We tend to have an under-representation of non-white individuals. And I think that's interesting because we have listeners from around the world. Half of our listeners are outside of the U.S. I mean, we have listeners in South America, Central America, Asia, Africa, Europe, everywhere. And so clearly this is something that occurs in individuals who don't identify as white or who are not white. And I think we miss a lot of them. And so I wanted to ask that question because I know self-injury affects all people. And so do eating disorders. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's, I, I'm really glad that you pointed attention to that because I do think that's really important. I think that it's so hard for people to seek help. And then if they're not recognized when they're seeking help from their peers or from professionals, it can be really discouraging and disheartening and, and just frankly delay their ability to get well. And to build on that point, I think even males and adults, Mm. a lot of people think it's, again, a white teenage girl problem. In reality, we have just about as many males who engage in the behavior, maybe in a different form or for different reasons or functions. But there are a lot of guys that might not be asked this question or screened who might suffer alone without knowing, hey, if I come out with the behavior and tell people that I struggle with self-injury or even with body image issues and having an eating disorder, then I'm going to be looked down upon or stigmatized, not only because of it being something possibly related to mental health, but because I'm a guy and it's not supposed to be something that a guy should have to struggle with, or an adult for that matter. That's right. There's so much shame already that adding, having someone experience more shame because they feel like they're supposed to somehow be immune from it or something like that is really painful to think about. And so I'm happy with efforts that really try to publicly show more stories of people of different backgrounds. I think that just helps tremendously for people to be able to see and relate to others with lived experience of self-harm. And I really think that helps with the stigma and decreasing shame. Bringing it back to self-injury and eating disorders, how does treatment look differently for those who both engage in self-injury and also have an eating disorder compared to those who may have one or the other? Or does it look differently? Does it matter? I think that at least in my work that I've done, if someone has has disordered eating and non-suicidal self-injury, one of the things that we're often looking at, for example, I think about dialectical behavior therapy as a framework that many people might use that could apply to, to both because of those shared factors we talked about with coping skills for emotion regulation and interpersonal effectiveness. And so I think that there is a way if you're really trying to understand the patient and conceptualize what is driving those behaviors, where you can get at both at the same time. However, also within the concept of dialectical behavior therapy, there's a kind of ranking of treatment targets 
And the top one is life-threatening behavior. So if someone, for example, has anorexia nervosa and they're severely underweight, that might take precedence before focusing on the non-suicidal self-injury. Ideally, you could target both, but the idea would be that if you can help with some weight restoration that reduces the life-threatening aspect of it and also should hopefully help overall well-being and decrease some of the non-suicidal self-injury behavior as well. So I really think there's an important individualized aspect of looking at what is the biggest priority, and then oftentimes you can address them together, whereas if people are experiencing one or another, it might not involve that kind of collaborative decision-making about where to first prioritize in the treatment. And do you think it might matter on the type of eating disorder, whether anorexia, bulimia, or binge eating disorder? Yes, absolutely. Because I think about on a kind of similar idea or concept, if someone is binge eating and they're harming themselves in a way that is medically dangerous, then that might take priority over the binge eating. Again, ideally, We're addressing underlying distress and factors that affect both. However, it can be helpful to have a goal for a specific target behavior. And so I could also see if the person individually, if their non-suicidal self-injury is more dangerous or more distressing to them, that you might prioritize that depending on all of the other kind of contextual factors with the individual person. It is still important to differentiate between disordered eating and non-suicidal self-injury because each of those could present themselves in a more significantly harming way than maybe the other, whether non-suicidal self-injurious behavior could be so severe that that would take precedence over maybe a binge eating episode or disorder. But on the other hand, sometimes it's, it's really unhealthy binge eating or purging behavior really affecting electrolyte imbalances within the body. That might take precedence over maybe something that's a little bit more superficial type of self-injury. Absolutely. Yes, that's a succinct summary. Well said. I I think that because both behaviors can range so much that I think that often clinicians are trying to prioritize the most dangerous thing and trying to reduce that immediately while still attending to all of the other distressing factors the person's dealing with. And we actually talk about DBT in episode 19, just two, three episodes ago. I keep referencing other episodes, but it all ties in. It does. Earlier, we had talked about the term non-suicidal self-injury being imperfect because some types of eating disorder behavior are under the umbrella category of self-harm. What are your thoughts on differentiating non-suicidal self-injury from eating disorder or disordered eating behavior? And is it important to make that distinction outside of just treatment in general? I like classification. I think at its best, it can be really helpful for guiding treatment and for people understanding themselves. I think that Part of what is challenging here is that it's not completely defined based on a behavior. So it's not that you can just say there was a disorder eating behavior or there was a self-harm behavior, and if it meets this criteria, then it's NSSI versus disordered eating, because I think a lot of it has to do with the function. And then we're looking at things like the thoughts and emotions of the person experiencing it. So what were they intending to do with that behavior matters for a question like NSSI versus suicidal behavior versus disordered eating. And is it mostly focused on changing body weight or image? Is it focused more on inflicting harm on oneself? And so I think those questions 
are important to ask, but I also think it's hard for people experiencing those things sometimes to have insight to express it. For some people, it's very clear, but for others, especially if you're going through a lot of pain and suffering, I know when I'm quite distressed, it's hard to pinpoint exactly what's what. And so I think it's an important goal while being at the same time maintaining a humility about our ability to really precisely categorize and distinguish those things versus understanding that they're probably all somewhat related and may be reflections of, of different aspects of similar issues, which is emotional pain and ways of coping with it often. I appreciate that because I think non-suicidal self-injury, eating disorders, suicidal behavior, substance abuse, misuse, some risky behaviors all can fall under the category of self-harm, but self-harm doesn't necessarily mean it is non-suicidal self-injury because it could be something like substance misuse. And to your point about symptoms with eating disorders, one of the focuses of recovery is weight restoration for anorexia. And yet one of the symptoms or a couple of the symptoms have to do with the body image distortions, the thoughts, the cognitions that might still persist. So on the outside might not appear to be still struggling with an eating disorder, but could still be struggling with an eating disorder. That's right. And I think we were talking about that study on over-exercising earlier. And there is a really clear example of how hard it is to define these things because you can't really draw a cutoff of it's this many hours or this type of exercise. It varies a lot depending on the person. They're an athlete, for example, might look like a lot, a lot different if they're a non-athlete. But what we look at is kind of that driven cognitive nature. Do they do it when they're, even when they're sick? Do they do it when they're injured? Do they feel uncomfortable if they've taken a break? And that is less observable, and yet it's psychologically meaningful. It is. And I'm just reminded, too, of the, the most recent episode we had where I interviewed Brittany, an individual with lived experience of self-injury, and she had made the comment that specifically related to self-injury, we don't see the urges. We only see the physical evidence. We don't see the evidence of successfully resisting those urges whenever they come. So uh, yeah, there's all these underlying things that we don't necessarily see when they're not necessarily behaviors because they're thoughts or cognitions. That's right. Is there anything else you would like to share that we may have missed in relationship to the topic of self-injury and eating disorders? This was really a theme throughout, but maybe worth also just saying one more time that both NSSI and eating disorders are associated with increased risk for suicide attempts and death by suicide. And so I think it's important that we recognize how painful these behaviors are coming from a place of pain and an attempt to try to reduce pain often. And they are associated with uh, increased mortality by suicide. So it's really important that we check in with people who are struggling with these behaviors to learn about are they having suicidal thoughts and suicidal desire, both in our loved ones and certainly as clinicians, because it's really sad and heartbreaking how many people we lose to suicide every year. Thank you for that. And I think, yeah, that kind of comes full circle. Bringing it all together, then finally, based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to parents, particularly those of individuals who self-injure and or have an eating disorder? I think that for parents, and, and I am a parent, so I, I can certainly understand this, I think that when something's going on with our children, we can get very anxious about it, and that can tend to bring us in different directions, sometimes maybe to 
avoid a topic or to express a lot of anxiety in a way that our children might not feel comfortable opening up. So my recommendation and what I try to do is kind of take a deep breath if you're concerned about something and try to acknowledge and validate your own concerns, but then to create a space of listening non-judgmentally and in an accepting manner to check in with your kids. If you've noticed changes in their eating patterns, they're eating less or their weight is different, or you've noticed that they might be harming themselves or the mood has changed, then just checking in with them directly, asking them how they're doing. And before jumping in with any solutions, really trying to understand where they're coming from, that can be tremendously powerful for children and adolescents to be able to open up. And then knowing for parents to know that there are people out there who can help and, and can help their children and adolescents. And so those are the two main things is trying to be understanding and, and also to kind of look out for signs rather than ignore them. Based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to professionals, whether the clinicians, psychologists, therapists, or researchers? Two main things come to mind. One is really to, and they're related, is to regularly assess for disordered eating and non-suicidal self-injury. I think that that means checking with every patient. You, like we talked about earlier, we are all as humans prone to bias. And so if you plan to check in with everyone about it, that's helpful because I've noticed this in my clinical work that sometimes patients at first don't open up about it until later because these behaviors do have so much shame with them. So sometimes just asking them can help them to know that like this is something they can speak about, especially if you know that someone has disordered eating or NSSI, given their overlap, it's really important to look for the other and see if the other one is present as well. And then I would recommend kind of regularly checking in during treatment and addressing with a mind towards focusing on what are the functions, what are the what is the person getting from those behaviors that makes them hard to let go of and, and kind of focusing on that and treatment as well as checking in on suicide risk because that is also present with these behaviors. Lastly, based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to people with lived experience of self-injury and or eating disorders? A major message that I would just like the people who have lived experience to hear is that it's not your fault that you are coping in these ways. And while there is a lot of misunderstanding and misconceptions, I hope that you can find a way to have some compassion towards yourself. You're certainly not alone, and there are effective treatments available to help you. That's a great message of hope. Yeah, I think feeling alone is one of the worst things. And, and I don't think anyone any one of us earns any medals or awards for suffering alone. I know a lot of people who have found you know this podcast have reached out and have said, no, I don't feel as alone. So yeah, thank you for kind of reinforcing that. Well, thank you for doing the podcast. I, I think that's huge because I do think people, and this was kind of my thought with the book too, is that sometimes people look up topics they're dealing with because they're, they don't want to talk to other people, but they're comfortable listening to a podcast or looking at a self-help book, and then they can learn that it's not just them, that there are many others who have been through similar experiences, and that's really valuable. Where can people find you on social media? I mentioned your website earlier, but where can people find your work and your book? My book is available where most books are available, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Bookshop, New Harbinger, my publisher's site. 
My website, KatherineHGordon.com, has most links to the work that I have done. I'm on Twitter at Dr. Catherine Gordon, and it's the same handle on Instagram, D-R-K-A-T-H-R-Y-N-G-O-R-D-O-N. And so if people have questions or want to reach out or just even connect, I really like connecting with people through social media. It's been a great way that we were able to connect, and I'd like to continue to do that. Yeah, and the Psychodrama podcast too, right? Oh, yes. I should mention my podcast that I co-host with my good friend and fellow clinical psychologist, Dr. Leonardo Bobadilla. And our podcast is on Apple, iTunes, and pretty much anywhere you can get podcasts. And we really try to focus on controversies in psychological science, clinical practice, and society in general. We've had a lot of wonderful expert guests on to talk about just a huge variety of topics. And it's been a real pleasure to to be able to do that because I, like you, care a lot about getting information from psychological science and the clinical world out to people in accessible ways. And so that's the whole point of all the podcasting and writing and everything else. Absolutely. Same here. Well, thank you for your time, for joining us today, for sharing about non-suicidal self-injury and particularly with your expertise and knowledge related to eating disorders. And yeah, I'm very grateful. Thank you. And I wish you all the best. Thank you so much for having me on. And thank you for the wonderful work that you do with this podcast. And just in general, I appreciate it. Dr. Gordon is giving away two copies of her book entitled The Suicidal Thoughts Workbook on International Self-Injury Awareness Day, which is this coming Tuesday, March 1st. To enter the drawing to win a copy, share this podcast episode on Instagram or Twitter and tag me at DocWesters on or before March 1st. We will announce the winners on Wednesday, March 2nd. Thanks for listening, and please leave a positive review with five stars on Spotify, Amazon Music, and Apple iTunes, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast. It is not considered therapy or meant to be a replacement for therapy, so if you or someone you love is in crisis and needs to talk to someone, you can reach out to the Crisis Text Line, a global not-for-profit organization providing free mental health texting service through confidential crisis intervention by texting HOME to 741-741. If you found this podcast helpful, please subscribe, give us a rating, and tell your friends. For all things psychology, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at DocWesters. For all things self-injury, follow IS on Facebook and Twitter at I-T-R-I-P-L-E-S. I'm Dr. Nicholas Westers. Thank you for listening to The Psychology of Self-Injury.